Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio. Radio 855am on a dial. Streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And this is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And this episode of Doing Time contains audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have died and discussion of deaths in custody. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Auntie Janelle, Janelle Speed, who is an Aboriginal community consultant. And she will talk about the housing crisis in New South Wales. Janelle and I had a wonderful conversation yesterday off air and we spoke a lot about housing in general and then looking at how housing impacts um, Aboriginal people. So we'll speak with her first. And then after that, we will speak with David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective. And we will speak to him about ending the cruelty, permanent visas of all refugees now. And we're going to be speaking about a rally. He will give a report back about a rally on Sunday looking at the rigged fast-track system. And then on today's show, finally, I will interview Wani Wondan Man, long-time activist and president of the Black People's Union, Karen, Karen Stewart-Ashton, who will discuss the Deaths in Custody rally on Saturday, 7th of October, held outside the library, highlighting the disproportionate number of Aboriginal Australians dying behind bars. But first up, we will cross over now to Janelle. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's North? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to and in case you've just tuned in, this is the Do and Time Show, 3CR, and it's approximately three minutes past four. And we're going to be speaking now with Janelle who is an Aboriginal community consultant. Hello, Janelle. Welcome to the program. Oh, hello. How are you? Great to have you. Not bad. Janelle, I think we've interviewed you before on this show, and I want to welcome you today. Can you tell us what land you're from, first of all? Um, what land I live on or what land I am from? Both, really. Oh, Okay. Um, I'm a Biripai Dungari woman and I live on the Garibal and Jackambal land. Beautiful, beautiful. So, Janelle, we were talking off air yesterday about housing and about, in some ways, I mean, it impacts everybody, doesn't it? But we talked specifically about how it affects Aboriginal people. Can you tell us a little bit about, about your work or what you think generally about what's happening? Um, well, housing is probably one of the um, key issues that impacts on Aboriginal people. Um, 
their ability to access safe and affordable housing in um, in the private market or in any market is, um, you know, being impacted by the the colonisation that has happened. Um, so yeah, um, it, it places an important thing for Aboriginal people because they need a house so they can, you know, live with some dignity and yeah. afford basic costs such as clothing and medical care, food, transport, education. If you don't have a home, you don't have a base. You don't have a safe place. And what do you think about Aboriginal, like, homelessness? Oh, look, I find it very sad. When I was a kid, it was never... People were never on the streets. They were, um, you know, someone always had a bed for them, but it's becoming harder and harder for people to uh, do that. And um, so now we have to rely on things like Aboriginal housing or social housing or, um, you know, trying to enter the market to build your own. Um, Tell us about the social housing. What is What is that? Um, it's a um, it, it just plays a role in, in providing housing for um, for people who um, who don't have that access to safe and affordable housing. You know, through the many challenges they may face in life. So um, sometimes they, you know, most of the people that seek social housing um, experience some form of disadvantage. Um, so we try to provide a safe and, um, I don't know, appropriate housing, ongoing housing, so yeah. that they can build a life. Um, You're pretty passionate about that, you Janelle, about this stuff. Oh, I'm very passionate about um, home ownership. I think, um, I think everybody needs their their place to call home, their century, where they can connect to whatever it is they need to, and especially Aboriginal people. Um, being displaced all over Australia makes it very difficult, for, especially for Aboriginal people who don't live on country um, through no fault of their own. Um, it can be even more difficult. It's, it seems to me that one, one of the things that I've found over the years in interviewing a lot of elders and, you know, Aboriginal activists is that some people are really frightened to speak out. Where do you think that comes from? Mm. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's generational stuff. Other times I think, you know, some people have found strength in their families and that to be able to speak out and they've got themselves educated and learnt how to use the systems that are there to use it. Um, some people haven't, but not everybody's made with the same bit of mongrel in them that I suppose true. some of us are. Yeah. One of the things that we like to do on the Doing Time show is, is to look at people's stories and tell us a little bit about your childhood, about uh, what you experienced. Um, Oh, I had an interesting childhood. I thought it was lovely. Um, I'm one of nine siblings. Um, I grew up... Um, I was born in Gundawindi. My father built our first um, house there in Gundawindi and it's still standing today. Um, then we moved to Glen Innes and my dad built the second house that he built and that was before the 67 referendum. So I grew up in a town where we, as an Aboriginal family, lived and owned our own house. Um, but when the um, Aboriginal housing came to town, um, my sister was involved in the legal service, so um, they had something to do with bringing them there. And um, I have paper clippings of my mother in the paper, the bulletin where um, the interviewer is asking her about what she thought about Aboriginal people moving into these houses. Um, 
because there was a lot of animosity from um, people who lived in that area and they didn't want the Aboriginal housing in there. And my mum, um, in her usual stage ways, just said, um, I'd like these people to have to live where, um, that are complaining, to have to live where the Aboriginal people have to live, which was up on the common, um, up near the, the dump. So um, I don't know, we were always brought up to um, speak up for Aboriginal people who weren't as fortunate as um, my parents worked very hard to make it for us. Um, I lost my father very young, though, um, and then ended up living in a housing commission house, um, which was um, a different experience. And uh, then I've gone on to um, own my own piece of land now so um, and still paying it off, and the mortgage and interest rates are scaring me. So... Um, I suppose if that gives you an idea of my housing type of thing. I think that, you know, it's housing is a, is a human right, isn't it? And it's, it's a human right. And obviously when colonisation came and 1788 happened, that's when the concept of housing came to Aboriginal people. And it's hard, especially when people are applying for houses. You know, some Aboriginal people or all people have gone to prison, then they get out and there's nothing out there for them or they might not have a birth certificate because of what's happened on the missions. Mm. Well, for 60,000 years or more, we seem to have our housing under control and we didn't have a problem with housing, but... Yeah. Um, since colonisation, we seem to have a lot of problems with housing and, um, I mean, housing impacts on so many of the other disadvantages that we have. If you are incarcerated and, you know, we both know the stats on the incarceration rates, um, especially for our young males, but our women, young women are now creeping up past that level and... Um, they're the backbones of our family. They're the mothers of our children. And so, you know, it's, it's not only an impact on, um, on a safe environment to grow up, it's an impact on the, their, their whole family, their whole being, their whole culture, their whole everything. It's true. And it doesn't work very well when they come out of jail because they don't have the opportunity to um, have a rental record or um, anything like that. So they have to uh, apply to social housing and stuff. And so I'm glad social housing's there, but, you know, it wouldn't be if we were had more equity in the system and housing was um, something that was um, equitable for Aboriginal people. It's very true what you're saying, and I'm so glad that we were able to talk about this. It's nearly quarter past four, and I've got my second interview coming soon, but any final comments you wanted to make? Um, no, not really. Just, you know, we just have to keep working for better solutions, get we better do. outcomes for Aboriginal people. So um, I'll just keep keeping on. <laughs> keep up the good work. Thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Every form of discrimination that exists in our community is magnified and utilised by prisons to cause greater division and disarm solidarity. We've got to really put a lens of perspective on this and know that there are children being incarcerated as young as 10 years old. Police and prisons, they're doing exactly what this colony wants them to. Who do we defend? Police. And who else? Prisons, pull them down. Yeah. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. And 
Time Show. It's approximately quarter past four. And we're going to be speaking pretty soon with David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective. Refugees and their supporters rallied on Sunday to demand that the Labor government grant permanent protection to more than 10,000 refugees and asylum seekers living in misery and uncertainty. Hello, David. Welcome to the program. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me again. It's great to have you. Now, David, I'm wondering if you could just talk about, um, just give a little bit of a report back about the rally on Sunday in Melbourne outside the State Library and just talk a little bit about what what happened. Yeah, sure. Um, it was a really feisty rally because many refugees are reaching breaking point. We're talking about people who have been in this country for 10, 11 years, sometimes more, uh, without any permanent visa, in some cases without any visa whatsoever. Some of them are allowed to work, some of them aren't. Their children can go to school, but they can't go to university without paying international student fees, which is clearly out of the question. And so many of these refugees are just at breaking point. So that's why we're seeing a rash of um, fightback, of struggle. We're seeing refugees prepared to walk hundreds of kilometres to Canberra or to Sydney in order to state their case. And down at Oakley, outside the office of the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, um, refugees, uh, primarily Iranians, but people from other backgrounds as well, have been protesting there for... In fact, they've gone into their fourth week as of today, and that office is shut because of their, their protest. And they're trying to speak to Claire O'Neill, and uh, Claire O'Neill and her staff have abandoned the office. And these people are saying, we, we are taxpayers, we are parents. Uh, very often the children are born in Australia. Uh, we want to build our lives here. We can't live in limbo any longer. So they formed a very important part of the rally we had yesterday. We had speakers from the Sudanese community, the Afghan community, the Iranian community, from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, uh, from the Greens, Senator uh, Janet, Janet Rice. And, um, and there was another speaker who's just escaped my mind at the moment. I'll think about it. I'll remember it in a moment. Um, and we marched through the city. People are really angry. They're really at their, their wit's end. And so the refugee movement has to step up the pressure on the Labor government. Uh, they're happy to um, uh, they're happy, they're happy to spend money on nuclear weapons and all sorts of stage three tax cuts, but they won't meet the very, very small cost of accepting another 10,000 people into this country and helping settle them. In fact, actually, the government would save money because it's punitive measures of keeping open detention centres in Christmas Island and Nauru cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So these people are very, it's very simple. They're, they're brothers and sisters in their community and they want to get on with their lives. And that's one of the major reasons why we had the rally yesterday. Yes, indeed. And, and in fact, I do recognise one of the speakers here. I think it's Mahubi um, from 12,000 Captive Souls. Yes, she was... she's, she's been a leading figure. Mahubi has been a leading figure down at Oakley, and she spoke uh, really, really well yesterday. I imagine she would have. I actually interviewed her and also um, a university student, um, Mariana. I interviewed them a couple of weeks ago on the show, and it's really fantastic that she was able to follow up yesterday. Yeah, no, she's been uh, been an absolute leading light in the struggle down at Oakley, and I'd encourage people to get down there to uh, Claire O'Neill's office uh, between 10 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon, um, and there are dozens and dozens. Of, sometimes there have been hundreds of people protesting outside the office, and they... They very much welcome any solidarity that people can give. Fantastic. Also, I think there was a, man a managing lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre that spoke as well. Yes, I'm very embarrassed now, of course. That, no, uh, that's that, OK. Um, uh, that's the, the, uh, the person who I forgot, which is, which is my bad because she gave a fantastic speech. Um, 
she pointed out uh, in her speech, it was short but very punchy, um, that the Labour government, far from showing a humanitarian spirit of welcome to the 10,000 refugees that we're talking about who are in limbo, are now actually coming out and being even more hardline about people who arrive by plane uh, and claim refugee status. And so Claire O'Neill, and this is disgusting, Claire O'Neill is attacking Peter Dutton for being too soft, too soft on protecting Australia's borders. And we what? know what that... Yep, because uh, Labor is saying that um, a proportion of the people who come by plane are not real refugees or turn out not to be real refugees, but they're gaming the system. And so Matty Verma made the very, very simple point that the people who are arriving... Uh, through this method, very often are low-paid workers from poor countries who are trying to make the best of their lives that they can. They're employed here, uh, but often highly exploited. And rather, labor, rather than Labor focusing on protecting these workers, it's trying to scapegoat them. And in the process, having a go at Peter Dutton for supposedly being soft on border control. And all this does is feed the right-wing argument that refugees are a problem, Refugees are a cost. Refugees are parasitical on our society. Whereas actually refugees, given the chance to work and study, contribute like nearly everybody else in our society. Not, not the bosses, but nearly everybody else in our society. They, those who have got work permits work and they pay taxes, but they may not be guaranteed uh, a regular Medicare card. Their children even if they're born here, may not be able to go to university. So shame on Claire O'Neill for whipping up anti-refugee feeling because these 10,000 people and others like them, they're still in our communities, the Medivac refugees, the people who came from Papua New Guinea and Nauru for medical treatment, they're still living in our communities in very similar circumstances on um, six-month visas that uh, have to be constantly renewed, Medicare cards that have to be renewed, sometimes no right to work, sometimes the right to work. So uh, when we talk about 10,000 people, there's actually others um, who we're marching for. We were marching yesterday for the 70 or so people in Papua New Guinea um, who are the remnants of Australia's offshore processing program, which the coalition government said, that's it. We're no longer responsible for them. Agreed secretly to pay the PNG government some money uh, for their accommodation and food. Labor has taken over that process, and now apparently the money has run out or the money's gone missing. And so we've got refugees, many of whom are in a very bad mental state, being evicted from their accommodation in Port Moresby, in Papua New Guinea. So we march for them too. They should be brought to Australia and given permanent visas. We marched for the people who have been sent to the Nauru Detention Centre. A month or two ago, Labor made a bit of a fuss about the fact that they'd finally cleared everybody off Nauru. What great guys they are. It appears that a boat of Sri Lankan Tamil refugees or asylum seekers has been intercepted. Those people have been flown to Nauru, the detention centre which the government is paying hundreds of millions of dollars to a corporation to keep on standby, is now back in use. So things are actually going backwards under Labor in a way that um, um, I don't know if we couldn't have foreseen, but we certainly wouldn't have hoped. So when Claire O'Neill attacks refugees, she's attacking all these people. Um, and we were on the streets yesterday alongside and in solidarity with all those people. Um, and it was a it was a great rally, very feisty. Absolutely. So so just to really really summarise what you're saying, David, here is that the fast track system is flawed. The refugees brought to Australia for medical care from Nauru and Papua New Guinea need to be treated as well. They need to be treated, and they need to be given permanent protection. And, exactly. and just to explain to listeners what fast track is, yes, please. Um, those 10,000 people by and large are victims of a process that was brought in under Tony Abbott in 2014. And this so-called fast track system was meant to speed things up. That's what it sounds like, sounds reasonable. Um, but in practice, what it was designed 
so that asylum seekers would fail. They were given very little time to prepare their case, to get the paperwork together or, or provide other, other evidence. And once they were rejected, and the vast majority were rejected very quickly, they lost the right to um, appeal. And that fast-track system has led to a situation where there are people like Mabu Bay, for instance, who is from Iran. She can't be deported to Iran. Um, she's not illegal. She, can't, she isn't locked up in a detention centre, thankfully. Um, but she isn't, doesn't have any way forward towards permanent residency in Australia. And, and there's 10,000 people in that situation going, going crazy going crazy with frustration and worry and fear and demoralisation because they can't go back to where they came from because they were persecuted there. They can't stay here permanently as it currently stands. And they are living day-to-day, hand-to-mouth, some of them living on, on charity because they're not allowed to work for a living. Uh, and the, the result is, is absolute misery. And these are the people now who are revolting. These are the people who are outside Claire O'Neill's office in Oakley. These are the people, the women, who are walking from Melbourne to Canberra. There's 22 women on the road as we speak, walking from Melbourne to Canberra to take their case to government. There's a guy, believe it or not, who's cycling from Brisbane to Canberra, 1,400 kilometres. Incredible. To take his case. People are, are, are so desperate that they're prepared to do things which normally you and I wouldn't think about, you know, walking a thousand kilometres um, in the hope that the government's, uh, the government's mind will be changed. So we're supporting them here. Uh, we're supporting them along the way with publicity and some funding. And we will be, in fact, at tonight's Refugee Action Collective meeting talking about how we can support them when they arrive in Canberra and how we can help refugees travel to Canberra to be part of a protest outside Parliament in um, just over a week's time. Fantastic. That's really amazing work that um, RAC is doing. And finally, 14,000 refugees in Indonesia who are still banned from being considered as part of Australia's refugee intake. Yep, thank you for not forgetting them because we shouldn't forget these people. That Their case is not as well known as we'd like, so it's important that, that people understand that there are 14,000 people who made it to Indonesia hoping to get on a boat to Australia. Because of Australia's uh, draconian policies, they're trapped in Indonesia. But in Indonesia, Indonesia is not a signatory to the International Convention on Refugees. So although they're allowed to stay there, they're not legally allowed to work, allowed to get a driver's licence, allowed to get married. Um, if they're caught working by the cops, they get uh, they have to pay bribes, essentially, to, to get out of jail. Uh, they're living on money that's provided indirectly from the Australian government. But the amount of the money they're getting paid hasn't increased since this policy was brought in about nine years ago. And so you can imagine what inflation is like in Indonesia. You know what it's like here. We've got people who are living on crumbs. They're getting, they, they're getting by. Labor did say before the election that it was open to reconsidering taking refugees recommended by the United Nations um, uh, Commission for Human Rights. Uh, they were open to it. That was a couple of years ago before the election. Here we are, October 2023, they have done nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. And those 14,000 people are still struggling to survive. I mean, to give you an indication of how cruel the system can be, um, those who arrived as children got half the amount of money for accommodation and food as an adult. But when they turned 18, their money didn't increase. So anybody who arrives as a child, once they've turned 18, they're still living on a children's income, which was inadequate in the first place, that they're trying to get by as as an adult. Cruelty is all the way through this system. You talk to the people down at Oakley who are protesting down there, and they will tell you about families where people arrived on the same boat and one person got refugee status and the others didn't. 
uh, it is absolutely deplorable, David. It's yeah. it's yeah. deplorable the way people are treated that go on boats. They're on the boats as well. Mm. I um, actually will be introducing my third interview very soon with um, Karen, President of the Black People's Union. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much for coming onto the program, David. That's okay. Thank you for having me. There's unfortunately always lots to talk about, and it's a pleasure to join you. Indeed. Thanks a lot. You take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. And you just heard the interview with David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective. And next up, we're going to be speaking with Karen, who is president of the Black People's Union. And we're going to be speaking with him about a rally that happened on Saturday. It's the Deaths in Custody rally. And we'll speak to him about that very shortly. Hello, Karen. Welcome. Hey, how are you going? Yeah, good. Not bad. So, Karen... Um, we haven't had you back here for a while to give us some updates, um, and you've always been really vocal about um, the, the referendum and deaths in custody and stuff. Can you tell us about what's been going on with deaths in custody and look at the, you know, give a report back on the rally? Yeah, no worries. So, um, you know, we have been trying to push for the recommendation for the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody to be implemented. Sorry, I'm just yeah. catching my breath. That's <laughs> just okay. The road. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, we have been pushing for these recommendations to be implemented for 32 years now, and the government's just not progressing it. Earlier in the year, they gave us one recommendation as a result of a Black Sovereign Movement press conference meeting that happened at Parliament House. But the one recommendation they gave us was the live count of deaths in custody. You know, nothing to actually stop deaths in custody just a way for us to count along. Now, when we're talking about implementing these recommendations, a lot of people might think, you know, that a lot of people might not understand exactly what we're talking about. So I'd just like to give an example of exactly what these are talking about. One of the recommendations, for example, is removing hanging points from cells. So just simply taking out hanging points out of people's cells so that they can't hang themselves while they're in their cells. Now, very basic, simple request. So like we're asking for massive policy changes, and, you know, sweeping reforms to the justice system. It's just basic stuff like remove stuff out of people's cells so that they can't harm themselves while they're in there. Exactly. And, in fact, um, Uncle Ray Jackson has passed away now, but he was he's in Sydney. I don't know. Do you know Uncle Ray? Um, yeah, I knew him. Yeah, he was talking a lot about Veronica Baxter. And Veronica was a transgender woman that, that died because... There were hanging points. Mm. Um, so the rally happened ahead of next weekend's referendum, which will decide if um, First Nations people are recognised in the Constitution. So it's all very difficult, isn't it, Kieran? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's really, you know, such a... Uh, I don't know what words I can use on the public radio. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it really is, you know, just the absolute mess. And, it is a mess. You know, they're talking about this voice to Parliament giving recommendations. We've got recommendations that have been sitting there for 32 years gathering dust on a shelf somewhere. Recommendations that came from mob and that came from industry professionals, you know, best sort of people you could possibly find to give the recommendations, and they just completely ignore them. But they're trying to set up, you know, more advisory bodies to give us more recommendations that will be ignored. But, um, yeah, it was a pretty good turnout, though, at the rally. Um, you know, we had, I think, two or 300 people came down to the one down here in Nam. We also organised rallies up in Mianjin, up in Brisbane, um, as well as Borloo over in Perth and um, Kernoland over in Adelaide there. And, um, yeah, there was decent turnouts at each one of the rallies. Um, it was really good to be able to put on this national action because all of our energy has been diverted into the referendum for the past, you know, six to 12 months now. There's been barely any movement, actions and rallies and protests around stuff like deaths in custody 
and our stolen children because everyone's just pouring their energy into this tokenistic referendum. It is a really, really difficult time, isn't it? Yeah. And what about the fascists? Have they been hijacking things lately? Um, oh, look, they're always going to you know, hang around and try and grift onto movements wherever they can. That's the only way that they can possibly you know, continue their membership and their support and stuff. Um, there have been a bit around lately, unfortunately. Um, I wasn't there myself because it was a conservative no-rally, but there was a no-rally in the city, um, I think it was a week or two back, and there was members of the NSN, the National Socialist Network, the Nazis, who rocked up. Um, they were there as well. There's also, you know, recently been threats made again against Senator Forbes. Um, you know, she's now in a position where she has to go and get her own private security. Like, this is how ridiculous the colony is. You know, we're talking about Labor government trying to help backfellers, apparently. And we're talking about, you know, these police and all their issues and stuff. you got the government trying to deny all this and trying to make it out like the police are there to help us and support us. Yet we have a senator for the federal parliament having to get their own private security because the police are inept to do anything to protect her. And, you know, you've got to kind of also question, like, is it that they're incapable of protecting her? Or, you know, is it something else? Is it that they simply are not putting in the same amount of energy that they would if it was a non-Indigenous senator? Historically, you know, all Aboriginal people, but in particular black women, have been demonised historically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's quite disgusting, actually, yeah. to see. I mean, I, I, I wasn't there, I haven't seen it, but I do believe that there was a video depicting these these disgusting um, fascists, and yeah, they, um, they, they need to be held to account. Yeah, they do, they do. And, like, this is an ongoing thing. Like, two years ago, similar group, or well, the same group, actually, similar members of the same group, you know, put out another video um, against Senator Forbes and First Nations people. And in that time, I think there's been like one or two of them that were arrested and they were given a slap on the wrist, you know, able to go back out into society and, you know, continue to terrorise people. It's absolutely ridiculous, though. There's a way the judicial system in Australia operates towards far-right extremists compared to how they treat your average blackfellow on the street. Yeah. It's, it, it, it really is nauseating, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you onto the show because I wanted that, that really highlighted, that that's really important. So yeah, definitely. what's the position... Because I know last time you were actually on, on air, you were talking quite a lot about the Black People's Union. What's the position of the Black People's Union in regards to deaths in custody and, and in, in the context of the referendum? Because I know that... There were questions raised about that. How is the referendum going to help um, Aboriginal deaths in custody to build that movement? Yeah, well, this is the thing. Like, We don't see any way within the Black People's Union that it actually would help with these movements, like deaths in custody. You know, we've already given the advice. We've already given the recommendation. Why do they need another voice to come along and advise them to listen to the first advice? Like, This is how stupid it's gotten to this stage. And that there's people out there, yes, campaigners out there saying that, you know, a voice to parliament will be able to enact the Royal Commission to Deaths and Custody recommendations. The government could do that today. They could have done that yesterday. They could do it tomorrow. They're choosing not to. And having somebody else just simply saying, you know, here, here's some advice. It's to listen to the previous advice. Like, why do people think that they would act on that? It, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. You know, the only way that we can actually create change in this colony is to force the the government's hand. We need to create mass movements. We need our people out on the street demanding change and forcing change, not begging with powerless advice that the government will end up choosing to ignore, as they have over the last however many decades now. It's really, it's really challenging uh, for me as a radio broadcaster because I've been trying to really stick to the topics of the show, and that is deaths in custody, um, looking at the human, looking at genocide, looking at the Bring Them Home report. But one of the things that's becoming quite apparent to me is that when I ask questions about how this referendum is going to advance to build the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody, 
the answer has always been, well, that would have to be put into more detail later mm-hmm. while people die. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's real sickening when you think about it. And, you know, it's kind of got to the point where our deaths in custody are so common and they're so multiple that for a lot of non-Indigenous people, they're just so desensitised to it. For them, you know, death in custody is just a number. 555 is just a number to them. They don't see that as people's brothers, sisters, mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. They just see that as another statistic, another figure. You know, whether it grows by however many more numbers before stuff are implemented, they don't seem to care. And, like, it's, it sounds really blunt, really brutal, but, like, that's the stark reality of it. If people really cared, we would be looking for action on this yesterday. You know, we'd be looking for action on this 32 years ago when the recommendations were first put forward. We've had how many Prime Ministers since then who have failed to make any movement on the recommendations, but yet, you know, we're supposed to believe that they've got our best interests at heart now with this week's referendum. I mean, Albanese himself could have implemented the recommendations at any point during his term. Instead, he has decided to pour all of his focus and attention into this powerless voice which, you know, has its roots back in the Howard Conservative era government. The thing but yeah, it really is, makes uh, you, you know, question, yeah. It's Sorry, hard. The, oh, that's yeah. right. The thing is, what from what I've seen, with I've done interviews for both yes and no, and the elders that I've interviewed that have said that want to vote yes, they mean well, you know? Yeah. They, they mean well, and it's... They really feel that it will do good. Yeah. Look, I think there's... I have thought about this a fair bit. Um, I think there's a few factors here that kind of play into this. You know, first off, we've got to remember that a lot of these elders, you know, have been so staunch and fighting so strongly and so hard for decades now. You know, they've been out there on the front lines making so much progress for us and just, you know, coming up against this brick wall of the colonial government time and time and time again, and that's got to wear anybody down. You know, I've spoken to some of these elders who are leaning more towards yes, and what I get from it is that it's not necessarily that they believe that this is some saving grace or that it's going to liberate us or, you know, address our problems. Correct. It's just that they're so worn down that something is better than nothing for them. You know, they've been fighting for so long and they've got, you know, they've, don't get me wrong, they've made amazing leaps of progress, but, you know, when we look at the rest of society and our statistics compared to the rest of society, we're still so far behind. So, you know, despite all that fighting and all that, you know, struggle, we are still so far behind. And for a lot of people, like, I, I do sympathise with that, you know, being broken down and just accepting what it is that's on the table because, you know, you've been fighting for more and more and you've spent so many decades of your life fighting for more and more but not being able to achieve actual proper liberation. So, like, I do fully understand that, and I fully sympathise with that. Um, and, look, it is, I think, fundamentally, the way to look at it is this isn't a reflection of the referendum. It's a reflection of the colony. It's a reflection of the way that the colony beats down our resistance fighters, and it wears us down, and it just keeps eroding us and eroding us until, you know, we've, we don't have much left to give. We don't have much left to, you know, keep fighting with. And I, I understand that. I fully get that. But yeah, it, it is a very sad situation. It's just the reality of this liberal colony attacking our resistance movement. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, year in, year out, you know, the Do and Time show looks at all the anniversaries of, of people that have died and warriors that have died and Aboriginal people in custody and also looks at all the a lot of the massacres, you know, that have happened. There's a lot of legacies here. There's a lot of a lot of history, isn't there? That's yeah, ugly. Yes, yeah. yes. As Australia's got, you know, one of the most horrible and horrendous genocidal histories in world history, like in the entire world's history. You know, nowhere else across the world did a occupying force wipe out up to ninety eight percent of an entire race. Like that's the legacy of Australia. That's a legacy that is unprecedented across the rest of the world. It really is. Mm-hmm. So coming up to the referendum now, you know, uh, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I just hope that the people who are in the yes camp and who are out there campaigning and voting yes don't turn around on October the 15th and 
you know, give themselves a little pat on the back and say that their job's done now, they don't have to do anything else. You know, whether or not the referendum gets up or whether, you know, it gets shut down, come October the 15th, we're still going to have to keep hitting the streets. We're going to have to keep, you know, pushing and fighting to have these recommendations implemented, to have, you know, proper land rights, to have our children stop being stolen away from us and, you know, to just achieve a better equality of life in this colony. And I hope that, you know, all these people that are out there pushing yes understand that the struggle doesn't end on October the 14th and that come October the 15th, they still have to keep putting in energy and, you know, more and more energy as time goes on. That's the reality of it. It's such a divide and conquer thing, though, isn't it? Like the yes camp, the no camp. We need to have unity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you were were speaking before, weren't you, Kieran, on another interview about how the Black People's Union encourages unity of, of everybody, all the First Nations people in the country. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the um, end goals that we are striving to achieve um, is that we'll be able to have a pan-Aboriginal treaty across Australia. So, you know, a way for all of these different Aboriginal nations to come together in unity and to have, you know, that combined agreement so we can have that combined strength to be able to actually put on a better show of force against the colony and, you know, be able to actually force the colony's hand and make them do stuff like implement the recommendation. But while we're fractured and while we're divided, you know, we'll never be able to achieve that because we're often 101 individual little silos fighting our own individual little battles, even though we're all fighting the same battle against the same person or the same, you know, force, I should say, not person. But we're all fighting these, you know, individual separate battles when realistically we should be fighting together because we've all got the same common enemy. We've all got the same common goal and outcome. And until we do make that united approach to stuff, we're just going to keep being divided and conquered. And this is going to happen with voice too, I believe. You know, When we look at the legacy of stuff like the Native Title Act and how that divided the First Nations communities and pitted First Nations communities against each other, who's to say that a voice which takes representatives only from select nations? Because you know, at the end of the day, we're over 250 nations. And at the moment, they're proposing it's going to have something like 20-odd representatives on it. You know, one in ten nations are going to be represented. What about the other nations in this area? You know, where's their voice? Where's their representation? It's going to pit these communities against each other much in the same way that Native Title did. Exactly. And, and when you really... I mean, Native Title is is just a very, in some ways, quite a, a disempowering piece of legislation. Yeah, it's the most disempowering piece of legislation. Native Title is the weakest form of land tenure in the Westminster legal system. Like, it's literally one step above and a barely a step above what anybody, First Nations or non-Indigenous, can already do. So, you know, basic stuff like go out fishing or go out camping. You know what I mean? Like, most people can do that. At most, you might have to pay, what, 20 bucks to go get a fishing license. You know, what, we save $20 a year on getting a personal fishing license. Big wolf. At the end of the day, we've still got the same bag limits. At the end of the day, you know, you're still going to get picked up by fisheries and, you know, chucked before a court if they don't like what you've taken or they don't like the way you're fishing. You know, we've got First Nations people right now, right across Australia, locked up several years to some of the sentences on trumped-up poaching charges because they decided to grab half a dozen abalones to take home to feed their family, something we've been doing for 80,000 years. And these are people that have native title claims. These are people who, you know, were fishing and diving on land that was, you know, given back under Native Title Act, and they're still being locked up for practicing their culture. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit different to the 1967 referendum, or is it the same? Oh no, yeah, very different to the 67 referendum. So back in 67, what that was about was actually giving the federal parliament the ability to make laws specifically for us. So before the 67 referendum, um, there's something in the Constitution, Section 52, it's known as the Race Powers Act. And what it does is it specifically gives the federal parliament the power to make laws and legislation for one particular race. Now, before 1967, it said that you know they could make laws for any particular race except for the Aboriginal people living within any state. So what the 67 referendum was about was taking out that little section that said, except for the Aboriginal people, so that now the federal parliament can make race-specific laws for Aboriginal people. And we see that in practice with stuff like the Northern Territory Intervention, for example. You know, that, that could only come about 
because of that 67 referendum, removing that little clause that prohibited the federal government from making race-specific laws about it. And this is another thing too, like, you know, everyone's lining up to get in this constitution. The constitution is a racist document. And it's not me just saying that because, you know, it belongs to the colonial government, whatever else and stuff. It's actually fundamentally a racist document. Australia's constitution is the only one in the whole entire world that has enshrined powers for the federal government to make a race-specific law. No other country has that in their constitution. No other country has, you know, this federal power to be able to make a race-specific law. But Australia does. All because, you know, our constitution was drafted and based on the white Australian policy and, you know, drafted up by the same authors who wrote the white Australian policy. And, you know, fun fact for the listeners, white Australian policy up in Queensland was actually what they based South Africa's apartheid policies on. I'm really glad that you've actually talked about that because I, I was going to ask you a question about the constitution and you've just answered it. So thanks so much for that. It's it's good, Karen, that you've you've come on to, to discuss all this. And it's very true. I mean, regardless of whether or not it's a yes or no for the referendum, the constitution is still going to remain the same and it's still going to be the same fight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day too, like, I would like the momentum and energy to go back to what we were all talking about 12 months ago, which was moving away from the Constitution, moving away from the Commonwealth and the monarchy, and federating as a republic. And, you know, it's really ironic to me that 12 months ago, when the Queen died, we had all of these people out there campaigning for a republic, and now a lot of these same people who only 12 months ago were talking about abolishing the Constitution to form a republic, are now out there campaigning for us to be assimilated into the Constitution. So it's, you know, it's, a republic? I don't think it's a republic. A bit odd for me. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. What was that? Oh, no, it's just, yeah, a bit odd for me that, you know, like there's these people who, you know, one second they're talking about getting rid of the Constitution and the next second they're talking about merging into it. Oh, okay. I'd love to talk to you about the republic sometime. I don't think that's going to help Aboriginal people, is it? Well, yes and no. It really, ultimately, fundamentally, it would depend on how it's written up and who actually writes it up. Now, if blackfellas are left completely out of the discussion in, you know, talking about a republic and moving forward, of course, any republic that comes up is just going to be a continuation of the colonial project, and we're going to continue to live in the same horrific circumstances that we do today. That being said, you know, a republic model that actually incorporated First Nations governance and, you know, sought to, I suppose, sign a treaty with First Nations people and, you know, make some sort of agreement with First Nations people and give us a bit more power and self-determination and rights over our land, you know, that could actually be something really worthwhile and something really powerful that could be really beneficial, not just to First Nations people, but the entire working class in Australia. We just have to make sure we do it right. Very interesting, Kieran. Very interesting. Now, before before we actually finish the show, and I should have asked you this at the beginning, because um, I interviewed Auntie Janelle at the beginning and asked her what land she was from, and I'm going to ask you the same question, just so that listeners are aware, and in case listeners have just tuned in the new ones, what land are you from? I'm a traditional owner from the Waniwandian land of the Yuan Nation, which is up on the south coast of New South Wales. So my traditional lands are around the sort of narrow Jervis Bay, Shoalhaven area. Kieran, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been lovely to have you. Have you got any final comments you want to make? Um, no, yeah, just thanks for having me on. You know, it's always a pleasure to jump on your show. Um, love getting on here and, you know, just talking politics with you. It's always Absolutely. fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. please do get me back on again soon. What's that, sorry? Uh, yeah, please do get me back on again soon. Oh, I will. I will. You can uh, <laughs> yeah, come in sometime. be great to have you. Yeah, yeah, I will. Yeah, I'll have to come in. Beautiful. Thanks, bro. Okay. Right, thanks. Thanks. Bye. It will not address the deep underlying issues that still pervade Australian society. And that primary issue is white Australian racism. We've got a clear-cut case here of intentional genocide from the get-go from the round table in England. 
the true history in this country isn't told. The government always say that they're committed to a truth-telling process. Well, where is your truth-telling process? I really believe that at the end of the day, the truth will emerge. You can't fight against the truth. It's, it's, a, it's an unstoppable force. It's indestructible. So deal with it. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Doing Time Show 3CR Community Radio, in case people have just tuned in. It's approximately 4.56, and I'd like to thank Auntie Janelle for coming onto the show, and also David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective, and Kieran, from the, who's President of the Black People's Union. And stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time Show, and we're going to be going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, by the Rumpy Band. Stay safe. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.